morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, December 17th, 2022. Well, it was another great week of shows with great topics and, of course, great guests. We kicked off the week with a look at changing your self-perception as you age. Let's take a look. Oh, it is such a wide spectrum. Are you talking about how do we talk about it ourselves, those of us who are, you know, well-seasoned? Absolutely. um, Okay. Well, we often make it a joke. Um, We are an excuse. I do not get up from a chair as quickly as I used to. And I say, oh, I'm getting old. We forget something. We say, oh, I'm getting old. Um, So we make these little jokes and these little excuses that are sort of low level, but they're little chinks. You know, they sort, sort of make us start thinking of ourselves differently. And, um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there are the things that happen that make us realize that old means more than just not being able to get out of the chair quicker. Old might mean a, a significant change and the quality of your life. And, you know, it might mean that, hey, um, as all of us will eventually, we're going to die. Um, It just might seem a little closer to some of us. So, uh, and some of those kinds of thoughts can be a lot more dangerous because they make us stop doing things the way we might normally do them. My focus in the piece was on ourselves because I don't think we think about that very much. I don't think we realize that we are sending messages to ourselves. I think we think that we are sending messages to other people saying, you know, hey, I know this. I realize I'm a little slower moving. Um, But I think the danger to ourselves is then that becomes a self-image then rather than say, why don't I try to get up from this chair a little faster? You know, why don't I try to use not the arms, but, you know, build my legs a little bit more. Um, So it becomes rather than just a verbal excuse, it becomes an action. We start acting differently. And then other people can see us differently, too. If we start saying we're old, then other people see us as old. I got to tell you, a big thing to do is surround yourself with younger friends, because my younger friends won't have any of that. I think it's an American thing more than in some other countries. I've been noticing lately, I like to watch British mysteries, and I've been noticing the women in those mysteries and how many older women they are, there are, and how their faces have not been fixed. <laughs> you know, they've just got the wrinkles that they've earned. Whereas in the United States, we have our older actresses. Uh, we don't see them as much, I think, as we see in those. Um, and when we see them, they are intended to be cast as an old person with a message. Mm-hmm. And um, many times, you know, they've had so much face work done that sometimes they're a giant pair of lips. Um, We were, I think aging just means, first of all, we're expensive. 
um, you know, where we, I'm mostly retired. And so even though, you know, I think I've earned my retirement, there are those that say that, you know, she's not contributing. Um, I think that we're frightened of the idea of death. Many other countries are much more you know, accepting other cultures. I don't mean just other countries. I think indigenous cultures here are very comfortable about death. But we're terrified of it. And so aging is a little too connected to death. I think because, you know, you talked about having the grandparents and taking care of them. But I think the other thing is also, too, that the grandparents took care of the children. That's true. And so it was just part of life, you know. Grandma and grandpa were there, or just grandma or just grandpa. And then they just got older, and then that was just that. And now it's, you know, we see our grandkids two or three times a year, which is fabulous because they live, you know, 1,200 miles away. Um, and so probably each time they see me, I'm a little bit older. So it's, you know, but nevertheless, we see them enough, I hope, to make that consistent. But to them, you know, we're we're part of the family yet sort of separate from it. Next up is Secure 2.0 on track to pass the Congress. Let's take a look. I mean, I think it's an exciting time in Washington. Always around the holidays is uh, it's like high school seniors getting their term papers done, members of Congress trying to get everything across the finish line before they head home to spend time with their friends and family, which are not necessarily their colleagues. Um, I think Secure 2.0 is in a really good position. Um, you know, I think the, the folks who've been working on it, you know, uh, Neil's staff, uh, Murray's staff, the, the staff of the other tax and ERISA committees, uh, you know, Cardin and Portman, so many folks have spent so much time really since before Secure 1.0 was even enacted back in 2019 to put this all in a good place. And I think they're very close. Um, and I think, as you said, you know, it's fate to some extent relies on the, the passage of a kind of a large bill, a spending bill. Congress needs to keep the government open this Friday. They will. There won't be a shutdown. They likely don't have their business done this week. So I think, you know, we're looking towards next week and right up to the holidays when I think we'll see the final uh, spending package with some other things attached. And I think we're still feeling really good that Secure 2.0 is still in the mix and, and that's a great thing. So many other things have been kind of cast aside at this point. So, you know, it's a really exciting time. Well, uh, Jeff, I, um, I got to give a lot of credit to Chris. We've done a great job of bringing the industry together to identify what they, um, the unified priorities are for both legislation and regulations. And many of the uh, areas of agreement across the industry are found in this bill. And so that's one of the reasons why you know, we support the bill is because it, it aligns very nicely with a lot of the priorities that, that SPARC members uh, have developed. There's somewhere north of 100 provisions between the House passed bill back from uh, March of this year and the two Senate committee bills, the Senate Health Committee bill and the Senate Finance Committee bill under the leadership of, of their members and, and, and their committee chairs and ranking members that really kind of all put together a pretty healthy product. You know, I think first and foremost is Secure 2.0 endorses the defined contribution system. And that's really important, right? That's what we do every day. We know the system works, and this is kind of an affirmation of that by a bipartisan large group of members of Congress, not only preserving tax incentives that exist, 
but actually expanding them, making it easier, getting more people into plans, letting them save a little bit more, letting it grow a little bit longer. That's really important. So that's raising the RMD age. That's making you know small business tax credits uh, so more people can get in, involved in saving and um, kind of increasing the catch-up contribution uh, capacity for, for older workers to make up for kind of some shortfalls maybe earlier in their career. But then also touches on you know financial wellness and and financial holistic kind of approach to financial wellness. So integrating student loan uh, repayment into 401k, 457, and 403 plans. You know, there's one company that Treasury said can do it. This would let every company do that, and I think a lot of folks are excited about that. You know, for the first time, Congress is saying, look, maybe there are ways we can help support employers offering emergency savings solutions. That's obviously really important. We come through a pandemic when kind of folks learn to, to kind of deal with, with volatile economic times. So there's kind of two proposals in the emergency savings space, which we've been kind of supportive of Congress giving employers more choice. And then I think from a spark perspective, our sweet spot, this is the, you know, the holy grail of, of kind of simplifying and, and making retirement savings plans more easily operatable. So what does that mean? Kind of a couple of quick things I'll just tick through. You know, to some, they might be boring to our members, folks watching this, they're kind of our daily lives. Why do we make it so hard for folks to take a hardship distribution? They're having a, a hardship. The roof came off, the flood, the water's raised. So let's allow for self-certification. We're not letting them take all their money, but we're just making it easier for them to get that money in a, in a difficult time in their lives. Let's take notices and disclosures. Why do we mail under law all of the documents in a plan to a participant who's unenrolled? Let's get the participant in the plan, then we'll mail them all the documents, but let's not scare them off with documents. So this says, look, if you've got unenrolled participants in your plan, you should encourage them and you have to you know, kind of provide documents to get them to try and join the plan, but stop treating them as if they're a plan participant. And then I think, Jeff, you know, there's a whole series of kind of um, making it easier for plan errors to be corrected, streamlining um, other kind of operations, and you know, some great things like hopefully you know, expanding choice for four through B plan participants. You know, their plans look and feel a lot more like the 401k and 457 world we're familiar with, but kind of a historical anomaly has limited their ability to kind of join the trend of folks investing in collective investment trusts. So kind of a whole range of really exciting provisions that, you know, will be impactful, not only when this becomes law, but I think actually pay, you know, um, dividends for, for decades to come. Chris may know why that's the case and it always ends up being the at the 11th hour, but uh, it's uh, it's always welcome, and uh, we're we're thrilled that uh, that it's made it this far. And um, I'm glad to hear from Chris's perspective that it looks like uh, it'll pass. Well, I, as Joe Jeff, you know, I always say members of Congress are just like the rest of us. Most everyone wants to retire. Not all of them are ready to retire from Congress, but they want to help us when we're ready to retire from our jobs. So, you know, yes, this is kind of a. a a sequel, but I, I think the good news, I, you know, I think it's, it's also the, the, you know, the reality is the sequel here, unlike some others, is actually better than the original. There's more provisions, there's more reach, helps folks in IRAs, helps kind of plans, you know, really a very broad and robust package. And yes, the path might be the same. Uh, and I think we are very hopeful that it, you know, it gets across the finish line this year. Um, but the outcome, I think, is even better. Um, and I think it will create a whole generation of new members of Congress who realize the more time they spend here, these are issues their constituents really care about. We all want to retire and we want to retire with, you know, dignity and, and with the resources we need to en enjoy the lifestyle that we, we want uh, to enjoy. So, you know, these are really critical issues. And I think you're right, Jeff. It's great to see a bipartisan uh, group of folks, House, Senate, um, engaged in this and getting this across the finish line this year. Um, if it doesn't, we'll be back at it next year. But I, I think we want to remain really hopeful because there's been 
you know, really years of hard work to get us to this period at the end of the year. Um, not everything is going to get across the finish line in, in different sectors. Folks are working for all kinds of different things. But as I said, this one's still in, in the mix, and that's a really exciting thing. Well, we're halfway through a look at our best segments for the week. We come back, we'll take a look at the other half. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Are you stuck with a low credit score? A credit report and score that's causing you to be denied credit or pay higher interest rates than others for the same things? Then do what Terrence did and called Credit Repaired for your free credit evaluation to help restore your credit. I started thinking about buying a new house and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I, I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the track to repairing his credit. I'm seeing the deletions and I'm getting the report so I know something's being done. It does make a difference to me. All it takes is one call to get started. Credit Repair has given me a second chance to have a better credit score. Don't let a low credit score hold you back another day. Do what Terrence did and make the call for your free credit evaluation. Call 800-819-4152. That's 800-819-4152. Again, 800-819-4152. Welcome back. We also discussed how just telling Americans to eat right just doesn't seem to work. Let's take a look. I mean, we're doing terribly. Uh, it's not our fault, but um, we have every number that measures public health related to diet has gone in the wrong direction for 30 years or more. And um, we really haven't cracked the code. I mean, the piece you're referring to is, is about what we ought to be doing, but we really haven't cracked the code on how to help Americans eat better. And, and my contention, large part of my contention and what we'll be talking about is that this is really a problem 
not of demand, but of supply. There are something like five or 600,000 diet related, five or 600,000 deaths caused by diet related diseases in the United States every year. That obviously um, outflanks COVID in terms of numbers of death. And, and, and we assume that COVID deaths are gonna be in the tens of thousands in 2023, not in the hundreds of thousands. But even if that's wrong, it's really unlikely that COVID or anything else is going to kill 500,000 Americans a year for the next 20 years, which is a sort of likely guess of what will happen with diet-related diseases if we don't do something about that. So diet-related diseases, that is chronic diseases, you mentioned a few, you left out, not being critical, you just didn't mention heart disease, which is a, yep. a big deal. So diabetes, most people don't die directly from diabetes, but diabetes is a direct result of, uh, of a sugar-laden diet and um, of a typical American diet. And diabetes often leads to heart disease and heart disease does kill people. So diabetes, yeah. heart disease, various cancers are all diet-related and, and together they form the leading cause of death in the United States, as you said, out, outranking COVID. But it's not so much the decisions we make as the as the choices we're presented with. So you can mm -hmm. only choose from what's available to you. Um, food manufacturers have spent the last half century, really the last century, but especially in the last 20 to 50 years, engineering food that's designed to hit those hot spots that turn you on. And they do this. They've done this scientifically, excuse me. <clears throat> They've done this scientifically using MRIs and using sophisticated techniques that most of us um, don't know about or couldn't understand if we did. Um, so when you look at that pizza, when you look at those Doritos, when you look at that cheeseburger, when you look at that ice cream, whatever, you are habituated to be turned on by that food. When you look at that apple, when you look at that banana, when you look at that head of broccoli, you feel like I'm obligated to eat that or I know I should eat that. But there's a further problem. And the problem really stems from what our agricultural supply provides us with. And, and um, on the, the big picture is that, that USDA and other government agencies have spent more than 100 years encouraging farmers to grow, to use modern equipment, to use hybridized seeds, to use pesticides and chemicals in order to produce maximum yields and to, and to um, establish the biggest farms, the most productive farms possible. So measures of success, so measures of success are yield and secondarily profit. I mean, for most people, primarily profit but that comes from yield. And the best technology and the best research has gone into producing corn and soybeans and secondarily some other crops, wheat of course, and, and some others, but corn and soybeans are the big two. And anyone who's been to the Midwest knows that you can drive for miles and miles, sometimes hours and hours, and see nothing but corn and soybeans. Now, then the question is, we know we don't eat a lot of corn and soybeans. I and mean, there's something like 
1,500 pounds of corn produced per capita per year, most of us might eat three pounds of corn directly per year. Where's the rest of that going? And the answer is some of it goes to ethanol, which is a problem, not a diet related problem, but it is a farming problem and an energy problem, but we don't, you and I don't need to go there. Some of it goes for cheap animal food um, to produce industrially raised animals, and we can get into that. And some of it, the rest of it goes into producing junk food. And it's junk food, now more increasingly called ultra-processed food by, by nutritionists and scientists. It's ultra-processed food that is really the cause of these diet-related diseases. And this is the key statistic and the only statistic I really want to give you. 60% of the calories in the American diet now come from ultra-processed foods, which means our choices, the majority of our choices in the supermarket are bad for us. So regardless of what we're triggering, triggered by, what we crave, what we think we like and we think we don't, we are presented with 60% of the options we're presented with are not good for us. So if, if we all chose to eat brilliantly starting tomorrow, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and the usual, blah, blah, blah. If we all chose to eat that stuff tomorrow, there isn't even enough of it to feed us because the agricultural choices dictate that what we're presented with is cheap animal, are cheap animal products and ultra-processed foods. And finally, small business confidence slightly improves, but it is a recession ahead. Let's take a look. So the National Federation of Independent Business is the largest small business association. And we represent small firms across the country in all major industries and advocate on their behalf on the issues that are most important to them on a federal and state level. And so we ask our members um, a few times a year, talk, asking them about what their main concerns are, what their main challenges are, in operating their business and and work on their behalf to help advocate for them in alleviating some of those pressures in business operations. I mean, we certainly yeah. understand that they are the, as you said, the backbone of the economy. They are the resilience, the flexibility, the you know driver of innovations for the U.S. economy. And so we want to make sure that they have a wonderful, you know, supportive environment to operate from. So confidence, unfortunately, is pretty low right now among small business owners for the most part. They are dealing with a lot of headwinds. They've been dealing with a lot of headwinds. And unfortunately, those headwinds have been transitioning and changing kind of underneath their feet as they've operated their business over the last two and a half years. So early on, it was, you know, the shutdown and business restrictions on their activity. And so navigating that was kind of the initial bulk of the challenge. But right now, they're dealing with inflation and staffing shortages. Those are the two big headwinds that most small business owners are telling us are their biggest problems in operating their business. The gas price problems earlier this year, or I guess in kind of in the middle of the summer is when it all peaked in June, July. 
And that was a huge cost pressure for so many businesses. And it related to whether they were delivering goods and services, but also just, you know, if they had um, machinery or if they had, you know, using trucks or vans or other type of vehicles for business purposes, it was really hitting a lot of small business owners' bottom line. And on top of that, restaurants were having a particularly difficult time with food inflation and having to absorb those costs. And we've talked to a lot of business owners who were telling us that over the last year, this is the first time in a while, that they've had to go back and look at their price structure and increase prices across the board to absorb those uh, cost pressures. Unfortunately for small business owners, the initial hit is to their earnings. So we've heard small business owners feeling a lot of pressure and trying to absorb those costs, either in kind of reconfiguring business operations, increasing prices, but initially their earnings are what's you know absorbing those initial inflationary pressures. And that's caused a lot of stress among businesses. And, you know, unfortunately, the two kind of go hand in hand in adding to the stress, inflation and staffing shortages. They've had to dedicate a lot more time to business operations that they haven't had to deal with. Um, well, for some of them for decades, you know, we haven't seen this type of environment for a very long time. No, it's still a problem for a lot of small businesses, especially those in the service industry. So restaurants and, and other types of services and retail shops, but also construction, which is kind of an interesting industry demographic for still having shortages for labor because we keep seeing on the news that there's this decline in, you know, um, uh, home sales or, or housing permits, things like that. But there's still so much inventory in the pipeline where they're continuing to look to fill those open positions in a lot of industries um, still. And we haven't, we've seen a little bit of easing on that front but not much. I think some of the easing is their anticipation of possibly a recession in the first part of 2023. And so they're kind of scaling back expectations on hiring because for a lot of businesses, compensation is their most um, expensive expense in operating their, their business or you know, their highest expense. And so kind of limiting expectations there, but still we've seen still record numbers of small businesses saying that they're trying to fill open positions, that they are not finding the applicants. They're raising compensation for those starting salaries. They're increasing compensation for retention purposes. And so a lot of it, it's a lot for small business owners and trying to manage their business right now and the staffing shortage is still very much in the picture right now as you said it's very competitive it's competitive with other small business it's competitive with larger businesses one of the areas that they do struggle with as you mentioned is health insurance because it is so expensive to offer for small firms and so we've seen you know over the last about 20 years a decline in offer rates among small firms offering health insurance as a benefit because of its cost. And so, you know, when you have a tight labor market, that's certainly going to add to the, you know, competitive issues related to attracting applicants for 
um, those positions at small firms. But as you mentioned, you know, working for a small firm has its benefits that you just can't find at a larger firm. You're able to see more of kind of the whole business operation, no matter what type of job you have in the firm, where oftentimes in larger firms, you know, you have your task and you do that. But in a small firm, it's very different. And so that is one of the huge benefits and attractive parts of of um, working for a small firm, but some of the benefits and compensations, especially related around health insurance, is a challenge for many in, in offering those benefits and being competitive. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website and, of course, all of our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for BRN Sunday. I'll be sitting down with members of the media, academia, financial services, and government as we analyze all the news and events for the week. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Tax audits, tax liens, wage garnishments. Every day we hear stories like this about good folks who are simply struggling to pay their bills. Each of them are living a frightening IRS tax nightmare, and they are afraid it will destroy their lives. I'm a divorced single mom, and my ex-husband left me and the kids with a lot of unpaid bills, including unpaid taxes. I was really starting to show my stress on my kids because the IRS had sent me a letter demanding a huge payment from me. I couldn't afford it. So then the IRS was threatening to garnish my wages. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. That would have put me over the edge financially. It truly seemed hopeless, but then a friend at work told her to call the tax relief line. The people at the tax relief line, they told me about something called innocent spouse relief. They worked it out so that all of the taxes from my ex are not my problem. I don't know how that works and, and I don't care. All I care about is that I don't owe the IRS a dime and they are not going to take my paycheck. Even if it seems hopeless, you should call the number on your screen right now. There is absolutely no cost for the call or the consultation. You are under no obligation. If you are worried that the IRS could garnish your wages, seize your assets, even take your home, call us right now. The tax relief line is here to help you. Now you have a knowledgeable, professional team of tax experts that are ready to negotiate with the IRS and fight for you to save you money. The Tax Relief Line's professionals have successfully negotiated thousands of cases, reducing and sometimes even eliminating the tax debt for their clients. It's very easy to get started. Simply call the number on your screen right now. 
you don't have to live in fear anymore. The call and the consultation are free. 